It may not be easy to see, but Karl Marx was right. You are now rocking with the South Lawn. Welcome to episode two. Ah, fuck. <laughs> Why is that funny? That's really not that funny, dickheads. You know what? What? Just let me do the introduction. No, no, let me do the introductions. Uh, you're if you're going to be asking the questions, then it's going to be like you're doing the intros and you're asking the questions. So I oh. should do the intro and you ask the question. Okay, fine. Jesus. Gonna be a big baby about it. Welcome to Brian is being a big bitch tonight with Douglas and Brian. Man, Our- you've been you've been hostile all all day. All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Three. Two. Welcome to episode number two of Rockin' with the South Lawn. I'm one of the two South Lawn boys, Douglas. I'm here with my partner, Brian. Rokea Shamsuddin has the night off. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing grand, Douglas. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. We're just going to get right into the interview. Our guest today is Rob Green. Rob is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, where he researches political history and memory. You can find him on Twitter at at Rob Green II. Thanks for having me on tonight. How'd you get started researching Southern political history? Well, that's a great question. Um, it really, when I first started going to graduate school, I thought to myself that Southern politics has had such a huge impact on not just my life, but the lives of millions of Americans. Um, what I find is that Southern history and Southern politics in particular don't just stay in the South. So in my opinion, studying Southern politics means you're really studying national politics and actually international politics. You're understanding how the modern world works by looking at the lens, looking through the lens of Southern political and intellectual history. So you talk about international history. So you're kind of thinking about like Matt Karp's book, This Vast Southern Empire, right? Uh, precisely. Yes. Okay. Books like that are a great example. In your research, what is the role that socialists have played in Southern history? Well, socialists have really been important as being part of grassroots movements across the South. Um, oftentimes, I think we assume that socialism in the United States is a phenomenon that's distinctly linked to just the Northeast or the Midwest, um, or maybe even the West at times. But in terms of my own research and my own broader reading of Southern history, uh, socialists and socialism actually have an important role to play in terms of grassroots organizing, um, both before and after the civil rights movement, along with, of course, during that time period. Um, but I find that even in the 1970s and 1980s, you'll find people who are associated with socialism or with the labor movement who are agitating for, for human rights on the ground across the South. In, in many ways, socialists are the foot soldiers of radical movements across the region. You know, it's interesting that you talk about sort of socialism being seen as a Northeastern or a Midwestern thing. What a lot of people don't realize is perhaps the most powerful uh, political movement, left-wing political movement in America in the late 19th and early 20th century the Populist Party came out of the Farmers Alliance, which was started in Texas, right? And yeah, yeah. while the populists found a lot more success sort of in um, the, the, the Midwest, the Great Plains, uh, they did have some success in the South. Now, uh, what you saw is the same sort of thing you see today, right? The mass editorializing against um, against leftist politics 
in the South, as well as the use of state violence to maintain what was then a democratic hegemony in the South, uh, and where they couldn't be crushed uh, by force, they were co-opted politically, right? Like, you know, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, right, of South Carolina, adopted much of the rhetoric of the populists in his runs for governor and as U.S. senator in the late uh, 19th century. Oh, that's exactly right. Um, that's that's a big part of the narrative of the South is the idea of the populist as being both a movement and a, a, a political philosophy as well. Uh, what makes them so extraordinary is that they were one of the few instances in the post-Reconstruction period of genuine cross-racial collaboration. Um, now, there is some debate even now amongst historians about just how far that collaboration went. But as an example, in Georgia, the example I'm most familiar with, uh, Tom Watson, who was in the 1890s a leader of the Populist Party, he was in Congress in the Populist Party for a few terms in the 1890s, uh, he allied with African Americans in Georgia as part of a broader populist movement across the region. You mentioned the Farmers Alliance. You know, there was a Colored Farmers Alliance that arose in the 1880s and 1890s that also tried to fight on behalf of African-American farmers across the country. And so this populist movement is, like you said, one of the most impressive examples of, of radical activism in American history. And the fact that it was crushed in 1890s is testament to how powerful it was in the eyes of those across the South who were in the Democratic Party who were part of that hegemonic system that you refer to. Now, so, now, now, what I find now, when you talk about race and populism, uh, so there was a colored National Farmers Alliance, right? But mm-hmm. it did not get the sort of buy-in from black from black people in the South that say, you know, that the Farmer Alliance, Farmers Alliance did, and really. You know, the story of leftism politically in the South, uh, it's kind of dicey, right? Because outside of the fusionists in North Carolina in the 1890s and the readjuster party in Virginia in the immediate post-Civil War aftermath, uh, there was the, the, the story of populism in the South is predominantly white. And you mentioned Tom Watson, who was a progressive that aligned with black uh, with, with, with black voters in Georgia. His turn, right, towards being an out-and-out, you know, far-right figure after the collapse of the Populist Party sort of gives us perhaps a bit of context as to why uh, black voters were sort of not as sanguine about the prospects of a new party system. And even the fusionists can be perceived as like they weren't a coherent organization. Like the populists were very much rural agrarian whites and they were in coalition with the black Republicans. And you can see this, really demonstrated in in Wilmington and in Winston-Salem. So I guess my question is for both of you, how did the populists diverge from what we would describe as socialists? Because they did come from Texas originally, correct? And, and there was a tradition of, uh, sort of 48ers, people who fled Europe after the the crushing of the 1848 revolutions, sort of proto-socialists and socialists who came over and settled in Texas. And, and it's from the German-speaking country in Texas that sort of spawned the populist movement, correct? So, yeah. so what's sort of the interplay between the history of, of early Marxist socialism and, and sort of 
the legacy of the International Working Men's Association's politics and the populist movement? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think it's important to note that even now historians are wrestling with that interplay that you've mentioned between uh, Marxists and, and populists in the United States. One thing I would say is that, at least in the late 19th century, you did have these concurrent movements going on. On the one hand, you did have the populists who were mostly centered around the South and the West, who, for the most part, were concerned with rural, rural issues. Um, whereas when you had the burgeoning socialist movement in the, the 19th century, they were talking more in terms of both rural issues, but also looking also towards labor issues in urban areas, too. Um, I would say, though, with the populists and with, with Marxism, uh, two things. First of all, many of the political opponents of populism in the 1890s, uh, both conservative Republicans and conservative urban Democrats in the 1890s in the South and across the country, they often argued that the populists were nothing more than communists. They said their language, their rhetoric was nothing more than socialism or communism. And that was one way they were able to generate votes against the populists in both local and national elections, to smear them with the idea of being communist. As for the populists themselves, though, I think in terms of the kinds of ideas that they had, they were much more focused on this idea of, of yeoman farmers, of being independent of the United States as being based primarily on the idea of independent farmers, they may not have had all the same ideas as the Marxists in terms of of organizing and in terms of aligning with labor, although we are finding more evidence that there were some communication between labor activists and unions on the one hand and populists on the other because they began to slowly realize that their interests were actually shared to some extent. But I do think in terms of the relationship between Marxism, Marxist, and the populist movement, I believe it's more of the populists were worried about being smeared in that same movement. Because again, this is the same time period as the rise of the anarchist movement. This is the same time period as the end of the African-American vote in the South, thanks to, to voter suppression methods in the 1880s and 1890s. So the populists are well aware of the fact that if you're if you're either seen as being allied with African-Americans or allied in any way with these more radical movements, that could be seen in the eyes of some as being problematic. Um, and I hate that term, but I, I think it kind of applies here because they were playing a dangerous political game in the 1890s of trying to get allies while at the same time trying to make some genuine change on the ground. So one of the more notorious instances of uh, at least in sort of labor history, of state violence um, took place in Chicago, the, the Haymarket Massacre. And, and there's a lesser known instance of state violence that was far more egregious that had a significant impact on North Carolina history. So I was wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail about the Wilmington coup. Okay, Definitely. So I think it's it's first important to back up for a second and to go back and mention some of the terms you used earlier. So you mentioned the fusionists in North Carolina. In the late 1890s, um, African-Americans in North Carolina adopted the strategy of fusion ticketing, where they would try to get representatives from the Republican Party and what was the populist party in North Carolina. They would try to vote for both to create these fusion tickets that could at least give some power to both African-American voters in North Carolina and white voters who were still supporting the Republican or populist parties. Um, in 1898, the best example of this was actually in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, when we talk about the black vote in the South after the Civil War, we often think of it as ending with the end of Reconstruction in 1877. But in fact, that's not really the case. Um, you had African-Americans continuing the vote in substantial numbers in places like North Carolina and Virginia through the 1880s and into the 1890s. Um, the 1890s, there's a reason why during that decade you see 
things like the grandfather clause and new state constitutions across the South that are being put in place to suppress African-American voters because Southern Democrats recognize that the black vote still mattered. That was especially the case in Wilmington. So in Wilmington, 1998, you have a fusionist ticket win election in the city. Um, you have African-Americans taking positions of power and authority in the city government in 1898. Um, now, local Democrats and state Democrats together did not like the state of affairs in Wilmington. Uh, Wilmington, up to that point, had been a model of what you could have in terms of biracial governing, fusionist governing, with Republicans, populists, whites, and African-Americans all together trying to support the city's government. Um, and so what happens in Wilmington is that Democrats in the state and Democrats in Wilmington really begin to whip up fervor around this idea of African-American men aggressively pursuing white women. Uh, this is, of course, a traditional tactic in Southern politics in this time period. Uh, this is the, the era of the high point of lynching in the American South. And often those lynchings were precipitated by white women or white men, sometimes by newspapers and by, by white Southerners, accusing African-American men in town of being rapists, of lusting after white women. Oftentimes, as Ida B. Wells Barnett pointed out in the 1890s, that was actually used to destroy and discredit powerful African-American men and institutions in those cities and towns across the South. Such was the case with Wilmington. Um, in Wilmington, you had accusations of black men raping white women. People were saying that the vote was fraudulent, that this city government had no business even existing. And what happens is that the government of Wilmington, which was, again, a biracial coalition of whites and African-Americans, it included both populists and Republicans, this government was overthrown. Um, it was overthrown by force in November of 1898. And what is perhaps the worst part of this, or one of the one of the bad parts of this, is that this was not just a local story. The entire nation was aware of the fact that Wilmington's government was being replaced in a coup d'etat. Um, the black population of Wilmington made overtures to President McKinley who was in the White House at that time, asking him for help to send in some sort of support from the National Guard or some units to help quell the violence, and he basically ignored them. Um, the violence was so bad in Wilmington that at least several thousand African Americans were forced to leave Wilmington, never to return. Um, and in fact, the Wilmington coup was so bad that really, when it comes to African American civil rights in Wilmington, that actually cast a shadow over any attempts at civil rights activism until well through the 1960s and 1970s. People in Wilmington who were black would say, don't forget what happened in 1898. We really don't want to have that happen again. And so this was an example of how biracial politics was seen by Southern Democrats as a serious threat to their power and influence in the South. And again, this is part of that North Carolina history of being a Southern state that has a raucous, very partisan, um, often bitterly divided system of politics. But this was only the most egregious, egregious example of Democrats destroying a duly elected government in the South during that time period. And this and this took place under uh, uh, AOC, right? And the, the red shirts, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. This was what well, the red shirts were a bit earlier in the 1870s. But uh, by the 1890s, um, the particular incident we're talking about, Wilmington 1898, was actually more Alfred, uh, Alfred Waddell, mm -hmm. um, who led the Democratic forces in Wilmington during that time period. Um, but again, North Carolina, you know, the, these forces were, were around for a long time. And this was, anyway, this is Wilmington insurrection or Wilmington coup d'etat was the culmination of years and decades of strife both on the ground in Wilmington and across the South in regards to, to black political rights. Now, Charles B. Acock would be a beneficiary of the Wilmington insurrection as 
it helped his Democratic campaign for governor in defeating the Republicans and the populist fusion ticket in uh, 1900. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there, uh, Republicans, as well as black folks, would have very little power in North Carolina until the 1960s when... You know, North Carolina kind of reinvents itself as the progressive part of 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 the South. So yes, instead yeah, exactly. of instead of sort of the the hard segregationists, you've got sort of what you could describe as concerned trolls like Sam Irvin. So <laughs> so let's let's move up a little bit, and and I would also make a book recommendation if you want to find out a little bit more about the populists and specifically the populists in North Carolina. Um, the Populist Moment by Goodwin is a good place yes. to start. That's a good one. So let's move forward to the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and and we're going to touch on a couple of things that that are near and dear to our hearts, because I know all three of us love Robin D.G. Kelly's book, Hammer and Ho, as well as uh, Civil Rights Unionism by Korstadt. Um so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Communist Party USA's work uh, on civil rights in the South. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the Scottsboro Boys case and and talk a little bit about the Southern Tenant Farmers Union and, and the work that Local uh, 22 did in Winston-Salem. So can you go into kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch, uh, either one of y'all, uh, Go into kind of a thumbnail sketch of the role the CPUSA played in the South just before the Depression and into the Depression as far as fighting against white supremacy. Okay, sure, definitely. Um, so I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned the CPUSA tonight because you really can't talk about civil rights history without talking about the CPUSA. Um, so before and during the Great Depression, you do have debates among communists, not just in the U.S., but actually originating in Moscow, about how they should approach the South as a place of organizing. Um, and so someone your listeners should be familiar with or should read about after this is over is, is Harry Haywood. Um, Harry Haywood, he was an African-American who was a radical organizer and activist in the United States. And he actually joined the Communist Party in the 1920s, went to Moscow um, to actually learn about communism within the Soviet Union. And during that time, he's one of the folks who argues for this idea of a nation within a nation, um, arguing that the American South included a large black population that should be treated as its own nation, that deserved self-determination. Um, this idea would influence communists throughout the 1920s and especially in the 1930s because they would argue that civil rights in the American South was not just a tangential issue to, to labor and class organizing, but was in fact at the center of such organizing in the United States. And so when you talk about things like earnestness, like the Scottsboro Boys, as an example, um, the Scottsboro Boys were nine African-American men who were accused by two white women of raping them in 1931 in Alabama. Um, now, at the time this incident occurred, the NAACP um, was first asked to take on the case, and they refused to do so. Um, that was mainly because there was some suspicion that perhaps the boys had actually, or actually the men, excuse me, had done the rape. They weren't sure if this was a case they could win. The NAACP really wanted cases that they could actually win or would at least make them look good in the public eye to continue to get support from African-Americans across the country. So the communists actually step in and defend these young men in 1931 in Alabama. And in some ways, that particular case um, actually becomes a moment where most African-Americans are exposed to the Communist Party for the first time. Um, up to that point, the communists had not really been 
seen as being an important part of of anti-segregationist movements or civil rights movements. But then African-Americans began to see the Communist Party, if not in a completely positive light, at the very least, they began to see them more as a potential ally in civil rights struggles across the country, but especially in the South. You combine this with the fact that communists in the American South, especially as Robert D.C. Kelly writes about in Alabama, they were the ones in the 1930s who were making serious inroads towards trying to build cross-racial coalitions that could actually fight against the worst of the material conditions in the South at that time. Um, so things like the Scottsboro Boys and moments like the Great Depression were critically important for communists on the ground in the South who were following the League of Folks like Harry Haywood and others in trying to develop a, a new line of thinking about the South and about African Americans in particular. Could you give us a, a little more of biography on Harry Haywood? Sure, definitely. Um, so Haywood's story is is really intriguing. So I mentioned earlier that he goes to, to Moscow um, to study communism and to actually be part of this larger Comintern movement around the world. Um, and so Haywood's actually um, really interesting because after he returns from Moscow in the 1930s, uh, he helps out with organizations like the Sharecroppers Union. Um, he leads fights, he leads protests against the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, um, and he even serves um, in the Spanish Civil War at one point, uh, fighting alongside others in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Um, but Haywood's, I think Haywood's chief contribution is that he was an African-American man who was able to meld together the ideas of, of Marxism with what was going on on the ground to African-Americans across the South. He was often concerned about black Southerners in particular, and he often got into arguments with other communists in the U.S. and abroad about how important African-Americans could be to a potential socialist movement in the United States. Um, Haywood, Haywood's actually a really important figure historically because, again, he's putting all these ideas together, and... I think he's, he's somewhat not remembered as well as he should be precisely because he was in the Communist Party. And historians are only really beginning to make a greater argument for the importance of leftist, socialist, communist movements to the civil rights movement. And certainly Haywood's one of those figures that we're still trying to recover and bring back to the war today. Let's talk a little bit about Operation Dixie. First, what was it? What kind of organizing had labor been doing in the South during the Depression and into the Second World War? And and kind of give a, a broad scale. And, and obviously, Doug, this is a, maybe a little bit more your wheelhouse than, than Rob's, so feel free to hop in. Well, so you have to, uh, you have to consider the the context in which Operation Dixie is occurring. So you have two things, two pretty important things that are happening around this time. You have uh, a lot of textile and steel work is being moved from places like Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, and are being moved to places like Alabama, uh, Birmingham, uh, Kannapolis, North Carolina. Uh, and what you're seeing is this movement is occurring because, you know, you can almost directly compare it to the opening up of uh, foreign car companies uh, in the South in the... Uh, in the late 20th century. And it is because of the, the cheap nature of the labor in the South. Uh, unions never penetrated the South as well as they did in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania. And so... Why because, was that? Well, 
so part of it was because of the sheer sort of unrestrained violence that uh, would be used against workers if they sought to organize. Uh, Bogalusa in 1898, I believe, comes to mind when uh, lumber mill owners uh, laid an assault on an effort to organize cross-racially uh, in, in Southeast Louisiana. With and, uh, Sol Dacus. That, I think that was actually in the 1920s. It was just after the First World War. Yes. Well, in any case... Uh, okay. All right. All right. Blah, 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 blah. So, Bogle, uh, as, all right, I'll just start over to, from the beginning. So you have to look at the context of what's happening here. Uh, and you have two major things happening. One, you have the movement of textile jobs in particular, but also steel, uh, pulp and other sort of manufacturing jobs from the industrial Midwest and the Northeast to the South. Okay. And this is because the, 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 the labor is cheaper because unions had never really penetrated the South like they did in those areas. That was because of the sort of unrestrained violence that you saw in places like Bogalusa in the 1920s. Um, and also, the, 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 the culture of unionism was seen as something that was foreign to the South. You know, that sort of collectively bargaining and challenging... Uh, authority was something that you just didn't do right and so that is something that you see happening around that time another thing you you have happen is the birth of the open shop in state statute um 1943 uh florida passes the first ever quote-unquote right to work law okay and, you know, Gilbert Gall actually uh, discusses this both in book form and article form about how the Florida State Federation of the AFL uh, sought help in trying to defeat the right to work forces, uh, you know, sought help from the national level. And what happened was uh, AFL President William Green uh who was smarting because they had lost a liberal congressperson had lost election in the previous election and he was wondering why the Florida Fed didn't do more to prevent that and stuff like that did not offer the requisite help okay 1943 that happens and as we talk about so often with the sort of southernization of american politics you see it spread from Florida to places like the Dakotas, to places like Iowa. The like, and so you see that happening in the South. In steps the CIO. Okay, CIO decided that they would focus on organizing the South so that uh, industrialists didn't have a place to cheaply move jobs within the United States and to create a more solidaristic union culture. And so you have Operation Dixie, which uh, <clears throat> lasts all of one year. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> there were successes. You know, the, uh, the, the, the food, tobacco, and agricultural workers uh, were able to engage in some really innovative um, cross-racial and leftist organizing in the workplace. 
uh, Mine Mill and Smelter uh, also did that, uh, particularly in Alabama. Uh, if 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 you ever want to read about a sort of a powerful and inspiring story, I highly recommend you get um, Barbara Griffith's book on Operation Dixie and read about the story of J.P. Mooney, an organizer who was savagely beaten several times and was told in his hospital bed, now listen, if you go back out to that plant in Anniston, Alabama, they'll kill you. And, 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 and what did he do? But after the day after he gets out of the hospital, he goes back to the plant to collect cards the union sprouted up at that plant that day, right? And so there were there were some successes, but ultimately uh, Operation Dixie was undone again by violence, um, again by culture, uh, some of the most rabidly anti-union uh, literature, came from churches that were sponsored by uh, uh, industrialists and their corporations. And in a lot of parts of the South, labor had a really tough time penetrating the company town. Okay, Kannapolis, North Carolina is one example of a company town that grew up around the cannon mills. And... uh, Charles Cannon, who ran the factory at that time, was looked at almost as sort of a father, a fatherly or grandfatherly figure. And Haynes and Reynolds with uh, in Winston-Salem, too, like uh, civil rights unionism talks about um, uh, tobacco workers, local 22 and their fight there. And and it is very much a company town because Haynes underwear and Reynolds Tobacco dominated those that city. And so, you know, being able to come in and penetrate that sort of tightly wound uh, culture uh, with all of the accompanying sort of surveillance that is available to the uh, company and the local law enforcement with off which often worked in tandem with one another it was very tough to get it going as well as you know this the another issue they had was sort of the paucity of indigenous organizers to the south and you know that's still an issue uh today and oh and what <laughs> Yeah, and what you find is that it it lingers on for another year or so into 1947, but by the end of 1946, Operation Dixie is for the most part dead, and it would also kind of mark the end of the heyday of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. Because this is is when the Red Scare really starts to bite into the CIO and sort of the anti-communist stuff that's taking place nationally really starts to hamstring them as an organization and their member unions. And what you find is that the, the unions that are targeted for expulsion from the CIO, the fur and leather workers, mine mill and smelter, the FTA, these are communist dominated unions, but not only are they communist-dominated unions? They are also multiracial unions and were the most successful during Operation Dixie, but they fell by the wayside in order to have the AFL and the CIO uh, rejoin one another. And honestly, from my standpoint, the labor movement in the United States just really hasn't recovered since. And... <laughs> Oh, the purge of, of the radicals in in this period is is absolutely bar none the worst thing that has ever happened to American labor. 
bar none. One other thing I, I kind of wanted to touch on about this, and maybe maybe Rob, you might have an answer for this. What kind of impact did socialists have on the civil rights movement? All right, this is this is a really important question because it's one that I think the public at large doesn't quite know about. Um, so before we go on, I want to recommend a book. There's actually several I could recommend on this particular topic. Um, one is by uh, Glenda Gilmore. Um, it's called The Fine Dixie. And The Fine Dixie really gets into the pre-civil rights period from around 1920 until 1950 and talking about how civil rights was heavily influenced on the ground by socialist and communist movements across the South and across the country. Um, and then there's a book by Thomas J. Jackson called From Civil Rights to Human Rights, which is actually about Martin Luther King Jr.'s own views on political economy, socialism, and the American state. And in Jackson's book, to answer your question, you really see how people such as King were really heavily influenced by, by Karl Marx's writings. They were influenced by socialist writings in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in terms of how they saw the civil rights movement. Um, oftentimes in, in public discourse, we think of civil rights as simply being a movement about African-Americans getting access to water fountains or lunch counters or equal education. And those were all a part of it. But many civil rights activists such as King, uh, Rosa Parks, uh, in South Carolina, but Jessica Simpkins and many others, they all understood that at the root of these problems was an economic question as well. And if you look at Martin Luther King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here, which is one of my favorite books of, of his to, to read and to really think about, in that particular book, King talks about the fact that for generations in the South and across the country, African-Americans and white Americans have been divided along racial lines, partially to prevent any sort of cross-racial organizing against uh, economic exploitation. Um, and so in terms of socialists being involved in the civil rights movement, they're there from the, the very beginning. Think of someone like A. Philip Randolph, for example, who was um, a member of the socialists, who was a, a socialist himself and was heavily involved in the civil rights movement, or Bayard Rustin who, on the one hand, was instrumental in the civil rights movement. He was the main driving force behind the March on Washington in 1963. But on the other hand, he was also critically important to the left-wing arguments going on in the 60s and 70s, and he actually plays a part in what leads to the creation of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and he was heavily involved in those debates in the 70s that involved the splits of the socialists and other organizations that were once involved with the civil rights movement. Um, but socialists in the U.S., especially African-American socialists, they understood that civil rights was, was integral and instrumental to change in the South and across the country, but they also recognized that civil rights and economic rights were two parts of a much larger struggle, that they could not be separated. And in modern memory of King, there has been far too much focus on King's I Have a Dream speech or on some of those moments in the civil rights movement that are sort of feel-good stories, like the march from Selma to Montgomery. And there's far less discussion of what civil rights activists, both socialists and those who were not socialists, were concerned with in regards to economic power. Um, socialists often brought to the civil rights movement an economic critique of American society one that folks like Martin Luther King certainly valued. Folks like Malcolm X gradually came around to also espouse. Um, and people on the ground also began to understand the 50s, 60s, and beyond as being important to civil rights protests and struggle. I'll give you a quick example of this. Um, in 1969, um, there was a hospital strike uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, with hospital workers, many of whom were African-American women, went on strike for better treatment and better wages at their job. And this strike 
is although it's been forgotten outside of South Carolina at the time, it garnered national news. Um, the SCLC on under. So you mentioned a couple of strikes. What role did labor, organized labor, play in the civil rights movement? Um, one thing we have to keep in mind when it comes to the civil rights movement is that for many activists on the ground and those who were nationally known, such as King, Rustin, A. Philip Randolph, many of them acknowledged and recognized that the movement was not just one for equal access to facilities on the ground or equal education. It was also very much a question of economic rights as well. So you think about figures like Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, um, they recognized that the vote was important in the 60s because they felt that getting access to the vote meant getting access to political power and political power would at some point also lead to economic power. Um, but in modern memory of the civil rights movement, too often we divorce these calls for economic power and economic control from the civil rights movement. To give you a brief example, in 1969 in Charleston, South Carolina, there was what was called the Charleston Hospital Strike. Um, there's a medical school in Charleston that's critically important to the state. And most of the nurses there, many of them African-American, many of the workers there, they went on strike. The strike garnered national attention. It brought in people like Rose, uh, like uh, Greta Scott King, for example, um, or, or others, Ralph Abernathy from the SCLC, who had taken over after the assassination of MLK previous year. They came to Charleston to have about with the strike. And they argue that the strike in Charleston and the Poor People's Campaign the previous year um, that uh, King was killed on the eve of, these campaigns for economic rights, they argued, were integral to civil rights. They were important, just as important as the fight for voting rights or the fight for equal access to facilities. Um, but in South Carolina, politicians here said, well, this isn't like the civil rights movement. Um, this is, in fact, divorced from that movement. And so socialists in the U.S. and socialists in the South in particular understood better than anyone else that it was important and absolutely imperative for activists in the South and across the country to link together these racial and class struggles. Um for them, it was not a question of thinking about, oh, um, I'm going to go for civil rights one day and economic rights are going to come down the road. No, they saw them as being together, being a combined movement, a combined struggle that if you separate the two, they both become weaker for it. So you mentioned a couple of strikes. What role did labor, organized labor, play in the civil rights movement? All right, so uh, Douglas earlier mentioned uh, what happens to the CIO during Operation Dixie. I think he did a great job of really summing up what happened there and why the movement ultimately failed. Um, but by the 50s and 60s, when you have the AFL-CIO working as a combined unit, um, they are actually providing money and support for civil rights activists in the South in the 50s and 60s. Of course, and this is goes to the earlier point about the second Red Scare, their support of civil rights is, again, within a prism of Cold War liberalism. And so organizations like the NAACP or Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, they're all towing this Cold War liberalism line of not going, not getting too radical, at least in public, on issues of economics and, and self-determination. Um, on the other hand, they are speaking forcefully about the problems of the South in regards to civil rights. And so unions across the country often lend support to the civil rights movement in the South. Again, I think it's partly a, a residue of Operation Dixie. It's an acknowledgement that the problems of the South will not stay there, that discrimination was a, a serious problem. And in fact, you know, many of the members of those unions in the Northeast and the Midwest, many of them were African-American or were sympathetic whites who wanted to do something um, to help out with civil rights in the South. Um, it is worth noting that when the civil rights movement experiences what some would call its decline in the mid to late 60s, 
that is when the movement begins moving away from the questions of access to equal facilities, the end of uh, segregation in the South, and they start moving more forcefully towards questions of economic exploitation and also questioning things like the Vietnam War. At that point, union support for the movement begins to change because, again, those, those unions, um, like many of the mainstream civil rights organizations, are heavily involved in this Cold War liberalism that doesn't want to rock the boat too much on issues of class, race, or foreign policy. Um, so unions are, are integral to the movement. And even those unions that are still in the South in the 50s and 60s, they become support systems for the civil rights movement in the South. Martin Luther King, time and again, spoke of the importance of unions to the civil rights movement in the South. The unions in the South also provide places where African-Americans get on the ground training in terms of how to be activists, how to organize successfully. And to your earlier point about socialists, I do want to add a, a quick point. Um, socialists in the South were also important training activists at institutions such as the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, um, which for decades provided a place where activists from across the South were radical could actually get training in how to successfully organize people and to successfully fight the system of Jim Crow in the region. So another thing that has been made sort of about the civil rights movement is the method of nonviolence. And, mm-hmm. and there's been some writing over the years, uh, like Negroes with guns. And most recently, uh, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed by uh, Charles E. Cobb Jr. And I, I was wondering if you could kind of uh, address that kind of uh, how that sort of political practice was implemented by the civil rights movement. Yeah. So one thing about uh, civil disobedience or the idea of nonviolence that we have to remember is that for many civil rights activists, and this is pointed out in Charles Cobb's book, especially nonviolence was a tactic. It was not necessarily a way to live your entire life. And many activists on the ground, especially those in places like Mississippi or Alabama, or to your point with Negroes with Guns, Robert F. Williams' book in North Carolina, what they recognized was that having a deterrent, an armed deterrent in the area, such as the deacons for defense in some parts of the South, to give you an example of this, or just people who were who lived in the rural parts of these states, having a deterrent was instrumental in making sure that activists could do their work successfully. Of course, this isn't to say that activists had an easy time in the South, far from it. But there was this idea that, and this has a long tradition in the African-American community, there's this idea that making it clear to the KKK and other white supremacist organizations or just white supremacists in the region that you are also armed and ready to fight back, that was a way to ensure that activists could do their work. And in fact, this has a long tradition that Charles Cobb's book actually does do a good job of pointing out. Um, he mentions armed self-defense during and after the Reconstruction period as an example. Um, a Stephen Hahn's book, A Nation Under Our Feet, actually goes a step further. His book is about the Reconstruction period up until around 1900 and black politics in the South, he mentions the rise of Union Leagues in the South that are made up of black Union Army veterans who were armed for self-defense and were more than willing to counter any attempts by white Democrats or the KKK to take away their civil rights through force. The idea of, of civil disobedience was one that Martin Luther King Jr. often promoted. But even he in the the early to mid-50s was known to have a cache of guns in his house. Uh, There is a story that an activist, this is at the height of Montgomery bus boycott, an activist went to his house and was about to sit down on one of uh, Dr. King's uh, couches. And then uh, Dr. King said, no, don't sit there. And there were several guns hidden under his couch. Um, in fact, it was Bayard Rustin who got King, who was already familiar with Gandhi's idea of civil disobedience. He really pushed King to take it a step further and to embrace wholeheartedly nonviolent protest. 
not everyone in the movement believed in that. They said this is a good tactic, it's a good idea, but we do need to have protection just in case. And so in these movements across the South, these local movements, you often had times where older African-Americans would take in civil rights activists and people around town would know they were well protected because those African-Americans had shotguns, rifles. Robert F. Williams, especially, who was, to give your listeners some idea of who he was, uh, he was a former Marine. Uh, he was an NAACP activist leader in Monroe, North Carolina. He really pushed people in his part of North Carolina to take up self-defense to form a gun club because the Ku Klux Klan was, was heavily active in that part of North Carolina. Um, so the idea of African-Americans and self-defense is one that we need to remember and understand because it shows just, number one, how dangerous it was in the South during the Civil Rights Movement and, of course, well before that. But number two, it also shows that the Civil Rights activists adopted a wide array of tactics to achieve their civil and political goals in these parts of the South. It wasn't just a movement of civil disobedience or full-throated nonviolent protests. There were debates among activists about what they should do and how they should do it across the South and eventually across the country. So we talked a little bit sort of about what you could describe as the the king period of the civil rights movement. I wanted to move just a little bit past that and talk mm -hmm. a bit about the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. What kind of presence did it have in the South? So the, the, the Black Panther Party in the South, it did have some presence in the South. Uh, in places like North Carolina, for example, in Durham, there was a, a strong chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, in North Carolina, there was the formation of Malcolm X University. Um, oftentimes, when we talk about the Black Power Movement overall, the Black Panther Party was part of that, but more broadly, the Black, Black Power Movement, we often think of it as a movement that was based on places like Oakland with the original Black Panther Party there, or Chicago with Fred Hampton or New York City. But in the South, you also had Black Panther Party chapters spring up. You also had people embracing this idea of black power. It's important to note that the term black power as we know it originates in Mississippi in 1966. It originates with the Carmichael speech at the end of the Mary the Mississippi March where he says, we want black power. The original Black Panther Party, I mentioned the original Black Panther Party minute ago, in fact, there was a Black Panther Party in Alabama in 1965 that was an attempt by African Americans in Lowndes County, Alabama, to create their own distinct political party that was separate from the National Democratic Party that was dominating Alabama at that time. So the Black Panthers, they, got, they were certainly influenced by what was going on in the South. In the the early to mid 1960s, um, the you know uh, Huey Newton and the others who were in Oakland at that time, when they were forming their ideas about the Black Panther Party, they were well aware of the civil rights movement in the South, and they were also aware of groups like the Black Panther Party of Lowndes County, Alabama. So, the Black Panther Party had some influence in the South. Um, there's a, a good book by a historian named Devin Fergus that really gets into this as well. Um, I believe the title of it is um, from, I, I think it's from Civil Rights to Black Power, but it's it's a, actually it's, it's liberalism, black power, and the making of modern American politics. And in that book, Devin Fergus delves into the rise of black power in North Carolina in the 1960s and 70s formation of, of Black Panther Party chapters in places like Durham, North Carolina. And he also argues that the rise of Black Power, the Black Panther Party in North Carolina and across the South and across the nation actually also helps to give rise to folks like Jesse Helms, um, the, the Democratic senator from, or Republican senator from North Carolina, excuse me, 
who for decades railed against civil rights, railed against the advancement of black civil rights. And he used the black power movement as a foil in North Carolina international politics for a long time. So when we think about black power and the Black Panther Party, we should not just think about these movements. This is a lot like the history of unionism or, or labor or socialism. We shouldn't just think of those movements as being outside the South, but we should think of them as having a symbiotic relationship with what's going on in the South. Uh, there's too often an argument made for separating or for a clear delineation between civil rights and black power, when in fact those two movements were often intertwined on the ground and even nationally in the 60s and 70s. Um, just think about the people like Stokely Carmichael, who began as civil rights activists, who became black power advocates later on in their careers. So I, I do think people need to understand and need to learn more about the Black Panther Party in the South. Again, it wasn't as large in the South as it was in the rest of the country, but it certainly had a presence in places like North Carolina, New Orleans. Black power has an important role in the politics of Atlanta, Georgia, and other parts of the South, too. And so, thinking about all the things we've talked about in the it, during the podcast tonight, what lessons do you think we could draw today from our Southern ancestors in struggle? Well, I think the most important one is that this process takes a long time. Uh, activism, struggle, and protest are not just a process that takes a few days, a few weeks, or a few months. This is going to take, take years. And tonight we've mentioned several movements that either failed or made only tangential gains. Um, I think about activists like those who were involved in the general textile strike of 1934, um, who across the South, you have textile workers organizing and rising up in big numbers who really thought the federal government for the first time was on their side and they realized that it actually wasn't quite the case. And that, that crippled uh, unionism and activism in the South for a decade. Or you think about people like Harry Haywood, who was involved in the Communist Party for a long time. Uh, you think about folks like Pauli Murray, who was a radical activist um, from North Carolina, who was an activist for decades before any change was made. I think the biggest lesson we have to draw is that change is difficult and it takes a lot of time. But as Southerners, we have to understand the importance of working across racial lines, across gender lines. We have to understand that what happens in the South does not stay in the South, contrary to what some liberal writers want you to believe. Um, arguing for blue states leaving red states behind is not a realistic or feasible or even desirable solution. Um, in short, this is a struggle that takes a long time. And it's a struggle that involves not just the South, not just the entire country, but the entire world. And we have to draw these lessons from the past if we want to not only succeed in the future, but to hold on to some semblance of grim determination that we're going to need in the days and years ahead. All right. So one last question. None of the rest of this shit matters. Who are you picking for the tournament? You know, I, I, I think I got to look at a bracket again, but I would not be surprised if Villanova takes it again this year. Um, I don't. I know Duke has won a bunch in a row, but I don't trust them. A lot of teams that go on runs in their conference tournaments end up falling flat in the national tournament. I mean, they uh, choked UNC against us at NC State, so I mean. yeah. I mean, and and I mean, UNC of course is always strong, but you know, I don't trust Gonzaga. I know that I, I should at this point, but I just don't trust Gonzaga quite yet. Um, I really think Nova's going to win it again. Douglas, who do you got? I think that the University of North Carolina will 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 reclaim the national championship that was stolen from them 
by poor officiating last year. Homer and Homer, and we will and we will we will beat Villanova in the national championship. Uh because Villanova sucks. And so I'm picking Gonzaga because I'm a huge dumbass. And <laughs> and and because NC State didn't make the tournament, which is great. Like, I mean, it, uh, God. I mean, I, I should be excited because South Carolina made it for the first time since 2004. But I don't expect this to go very far in a bracket that includes Marquette and then possibly Duke right after that. I mean, it's it's an SEC team. Basically, they're sort of like the uh, filler for the brackets. Yeah, pretty much. If it's not Kentucky, we're basically done for. So I want to thank you again for coming on the uh, coming on the podcast. Um, this was a fantastic interview. We'll have to have you back on at some point again to talk uh, abolitionism back in the day and and sort of how that interrelates to socialist history. Um, and and anything we can anything you want to talk about anything you want to promote any I'm sorry anything you want to promote uh, before we go um well uh, I, I would only um, advise folks to, to read my, my piece in the scent magazine that came out with the most recent issue um, about struggles in the past um, it actually includes a section on the southern Ten- tenant farmers union that was uh, really active in the 1930s um, that that's the article that really gives some semblance to the ideas discussed tonight of activism in the past and how it influences the future of, of our own activism. Cool. And with that, we say bye bye. This has been Rocking with the South Lawn with Douglas Williams, Brian, and normally Rokea Shamsadeen. We would like to give much thanks to our guest. Rob Green, and to our producer, Drew Franklin, for making us all sound so good. And until next time, peace. Picture this, I'm a bag of dicks, put me to your lips, I am sick. I will punch a baby bear in his shit. Give me lip, I'ma send you to the yard, get a stick, make a switch. I can end a conversation real quick. I am crack, I ain't lying, kick a lion in this crack. I'm the shit, I will fall off in your crib, take a shit. Hit your mama on the booty, kick your dog, fuck your bitch. That boy dressed up like you sound on and took pictures with your kids. We the best, we will cut a frowning face in your chest, little wench. I'ma mention a refresh, I'm a man. Get correct, I will walk into a court while they wreck Screaming, yes, I am guilty, motherfuckers, I am death Hey, you wanna hear a good joke? Nobody speak